Welcome to the Get Over Yourself podcast. This is author and athlete Brad Kearns discovering ways to be healthy, fit, and happy in hectic, high-stress modern life. So let's slow down and take a deep breath, take a cold plunge, and expertly balance that competitive intensity with an appreciation of the journey. That's the theme of the show. Here we go. Let us give thanks to the show sponsors. These are great products and services. Check them out. It's so difficult to make the cut. Almostheaven.com for beautiful compact home use sauna kits. Ancestralsupplements.com for grass-fed organ meats in a capsule. Easy. DNAfit.com. Genetic testing delivering comprehensive diet and exercise recommendations. WildIdea.com. Grass-fed, sustainable buffalo, beyond organic, and the Primal Blueprint online multimedia mastery courses. I'm your host. Learn more at the links on my homepage, bradkearns.com. I also have a new button called Shopping with Brad for other cool stuff at bradkearns.com. And here we go with the show. We don't want to blend praise and affection and make that affection conditional based on success. And we don't want to make praise and encouragement the same thing because, again, then your praise is insincere. If you want more people participating, then you want to give out more trophies. If your goal is to find out who's the best, now you give fewer trophies and the prizes are deeper. Oh, you wanted to join soccer because you wanted to have fun and run around and play with your kids? No, no, that's not good enough. You have to have a trophy. You have to have public recognition of your greatness to make that activity worth your time. Okay, if you're ready to change your life, please check out the Primal Blueprint Mastery Courses, of which I am the host. The exercise was to bring our books to life with a comprehensive online multimedia educational experience. We have the Primal Blueprint 21-Day Transformation. So you can go primal, ditch grains and sugars, learn what primal living is all about. We have the Keto Reset Mastery course. If you've built up some good momentum and now you're ready to try this keto thing and do it right once and for all and be guided step-by-step throughout the content in the entire book, The Keto Reset Diet, through video. If you're too lazy to read, just watch me talk you through the whole thing. We also have the Primal Endurance Mastery course, which is the world's most most comprehensive library of interviews with experts, great athletes, and covering the entire content of the Primal Endurance book, an absolute must-have for an endurance athlete who's trying to do it right instead of get broken down and burnt out, and many other ones. We have a stand-up desk experience called Don't Just Sit There with Katie Bowman. We have a paleo cooking boot camp where you can cook for a couple hours on the weekend and have meals for your family all throughout the week. Great courses. Click the links at bradkearns.com and learn more. Welcome to my wonderful podcast with Ashley Merriman, New York Times best-selling author, thought leader and influencer of modern culture. Her work, along with her co-author, Poe Bronson, a Stanford professor, has caused us to rethink many of the basic notions that we have held near and dear about parenting and about the nature of healthy competition. Her books are called Nurture Shock, about parenting, rethinking our ideals about parenting, and the second book, 
called Top Dog about the science of competition. These were runaway New York Times bestsellers, had a lot of attention and interest. Ashley has been traveling the globe, doing consulting for corporations, athletic teams, and giving speeches to interested audiences who are willing to rethink some of these basic notions. I recall reading this wonderful article in New York Magazine in 2007 called The Inverse Power of Praise, How Not to Talk to Your Kids. And this article led to the book project, Nurture Shock, talking about these basic ideals that emanated from the self-esteem movement, how you want to boost your kid's self-esteem by telling them they're wonderful and giving every kid a trophy when they participate in sports. And pretty soon we enter the helicopter parent age where we are now recognizing all manner of fallout relating to this lovey-dovey type of parenting where we try to shield our kids from uh, the trials and tribulations and competitive intensity of daily life. The Nurture Shock book led to, the research done for that led to the next book called Top Dog, which was an absolutely fascinating account of competition, the science of competition, what's an appropriate competition structure to achieve the desired goals. Ashley talks all through these concepts. It's a fast-paced, fast-moving podcast, a lot of fun stuff. Um, She likes to go off on this concept of every kid gets a trophy. She got roundly criticized when she first said it years ago. And so she's had time to reflect and think further. And now she's even more convinced that this is a terrible idea. Why? Lots of reasons why. One of them is these things end up in landfills and they don't biodegrade because they're all plastic. Fascinating account of how this whole trophy obsession started. You got to listen to the show to go deep. Thank you. Enjoy. Ashley Merriman. We're warmed up. We're fired up. We yes. talked offline about some sports topics. I, I love how you're a sports fan too, but we got some, we got some big issues to discuss. Okay. Uh, first of all, I want to know how the journey's gone from, this is now almost 10 years ago that you got Nurture Shock and then Top Dog, these two big time books that you and Poe Bronson wrote. Mm-hmm. What's that, what's that run been like? I mean, tell us like as an author, first you're buried cranking these books, working hard, doing the research. I know that's a big part of your, your style of writing mm-hmm. and then the books out. And then do you sit and rest on a beach or are there other things? <laughs> um, no, I don't sit. And, well, occasionally I jog on a beach and then I'm pretty excited that I made it. The, um, No, I kind of joke that it's sort of a bipolar existence because, you know, a good day when I'm working on a, you know, an article or on a book is me laying on a couch with a pile of three or 4,000 pages of scientific journals. A really fun day is going to a scientific conference and running around and meeting the people whose papers I've read and hounding them with stupid questions. That's, that is like the best day. And... Um, but a lot of, you know, uh, writing is a pretty solitary thing. And, you know, if I'm, if I'm on the phone with someone for a few minutes for an interview, that may be the only human contact I had during that workday. And I'm thinking and working and writing. And, um, but it's, it's pretty quiet. And then the book comes out and it's a year or two of speaking and interacting with humans. And that's very fascinating and exciting when you haven't done that for a year or two. And all of a sudden you're like, wow, look at all these people. I read about you. I've written about you people. 
hmm, my, oh my gosh, your, your people are just like what I read about. That's so cool. So yeah, I, I call it a bipolar existence. And, um, but I love both of it, actually. I mm-hmm. love the learning. I love knowing something that I didn't even know was a possible issue the day before. And now all of a sudden my whole world looks different. But then being able to actually talk to people, whether it's one-on-one or giving a speech and, you know, how you communicate something's different one-on-one and, you know, verbally than it is on the page. But it's also then that an immediate feedback, you know, the, the feedback, does that resonate with you? You know, when you write an article, you hope it lands. When you write an article, you know, a book, you hope that made sense. But you're never really sure until someone sends you an email that there was a typo on page blank, blank, blank. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're giving a speech and you see a bunch of people but, nodding or laughing or looking at you like, are you completely crazy? It's a very different experience. So you get it more in real time. I get to get competent at both. I think they, they probably complement each other. Um, yeah, I think so. I mean, I think that. You know, I, I don't know if everybody likes both. I think some people mm. really like the writing part and some people really like the speaking and stuff. I, I like I like both of them for different ways. I think both of them challenge me. And if they challenge me, hopefully that makes me better in both directions. What kind of groups are you generally uh, talking to? Well, I think that, um, you know, so we have, as you mentioned, two books, Nurture Shock and Top Dog. And the audiences often tend to sort of split between the two of them. So a parenting organization or a school or a teacher's group would want me to talk about something, maybe nurture shock. And then, you know, sports teams, parenting coaching groups, uh, business leaders will want to talk about high performance and performing under pressure and those kinds of issues that we talk about in Top Dog. But then there's obviously some overlap too. Yeah. So in nurture shock, we, uh, we're compelled to second guess a lot of these long-standing notions about parenting that turn out they might not be so healthy. And uh, some of them are kind of uh, people still not awakened to this or haven't even heard about the idea that maybe constantly praising your kid and obsessing with their self-esteem is um, not going to serve them in the long run. So can you talk about just the basic notions that, that came out of the gate where you were probably here with some controversy when the book came out too, you and Poe Bronson co-author? Uh, yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting because as you mentioned, um, it's almost been about 10 years now, especially if you look, the nurture shock sort of genesis came from an article that we wrote in New York Magazine. And that sort of, the reaction of it was sort of amazingly huge. Uh, Is this the inverse power of praise? Yes. Oh, okay. That was um, before the book? That was before the book. Oh, I didn't realize. I got to tell you, like I read that and it it changed my life on the spot. I read it in 2007. Mm -hmm. And I think about it as a parent probably every single day since then, one way, shape or form and just catching and reflecting on the, the way that you communicate, it was, mm-hmm. it was huge. And I guess the effort-based praise was the big, the big takeaway there. What was the yes. thing that kind of kicked off the book idea because of the reaction? Um, well, we definitely, you know, we were reading and I had read Carol's work, Carol Dweck, a researcher. At, she was at Columbia and now she's at Stanford. And how you should not tell kids they're smart. You should tell them <gasps> that they worked hard. And 
The difference there, I'm going as short as I possibly can because a bunch of probably already know this. Just to shock your ass off. I don't know, man. That's a a big one. It's interesting, actually. And the reason reason it's kind of, um, you know, I'm never quite sure, like, does everybody know this or just nobody know this? It's so obvious. Yeah. Well, no, it's not actually that. Um, I was at a scientific conference last year at the American Psychological Association and two separate presenters mentioned that that it can take about 10 years for a research finding to actually become widespread accepted in clinical practice. And I, I heard that number and I was like, that's just terrible. And it was interesting that two separate unrelated, and I don't actually know if there was a study to actually determine that, but that seems to be the rule of thumb. And at first I thought that was just completely insane and almost tragic. Because if I have, if there's good research on how to help someone, it's really sad that it can take a decade to get it out there. And then I thought about nurture shock and that, you know, I'd written it about 10 years ago and there are still people who are saying, wow, I shouldn't stop telling, I should stop telling my kid they're brilliant all the time. And like, yeah, actually that's a really bad thing. And Oh yeah, look, 10 years. Huh. Hmm. <laughs> but the reason that, and skipping some of the underlying mechanisms, if you want, I can, but the, the top lane that I think is important and what reminds me every day, just like you, is that whether it's praise or feed or failure feedback, either direction, you don't want to be focusing on who someone is, but what they do. Because I can't change who I am, but I can change what I do. I have control over those actions. So when you tell a kid, you're so smart, when you tell an athlete, you're a natural athlete, or you're a nat- or you tell someone else, you're a natural klutz, mm. the answer is, okay, you know, what do I do with that yeah, information? Yeah. Well, that's I a good comparison. pack up to, and go home, right? You know, obviously, we don't want to do the negative stuff. You're a loser, kid. You know, that, we know that doesn't work. Right. But then- a natural athlete. What's wrong with that? You're smart. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're beautiful as a as a female. Mm-hmm. Oh boy! And Carol actually said, you know, we think about it exactly in your point that if a kid's playing ball in the house and you told them a million times, don't play ball in the house, and the ball breaks a window or breaks a vase, no one thinks the appropriate response to "I broke the vase" was "You horrible child." But if that same child comes home and says, look, mommy, I made a vase in art class. Oh, you wonderful child. Well, no, they're not wonderful for making a vase. They're not horrible for breaking a vase. They just did something. So you want to respond to what they did because that keeps the control in their corner. And and using those specific tasks. And that's true for kids. It's true for grownups. You know, I mean, if I told, you know, I was just talking to someone, you know, about the science of feedback. And if I told you, if you, you and were working for me and I was your boss and I said, you know, you're unreliable. What's the answer? <laughs> okay. Sorry. What are you going to, but what are you going to do about it? And if anything, I just gave you permission to be unreliable, didn't yeah. I? Cause that's yeah. what I expect wow. of you. Yeah. So I may actually encourage that behavior because you may not have thought you were unreliable, but now, you know, that's what I expect of you. So you may live up, live down mm-hmm. to my opinion. Mm-hmm. So the better thing to say is, you've been late for three meetings in a row. What's going on? Because now you can explain to me, oh, I didn't know they were that important, or I didn't care, or I got caught in traffic, or who knows. 
But now we actually can address three specific things and we can fix them in the future. We can't fix unreliable. We can't fix you're a genius. We can't fix you're an idiot. <laughs> no, I mean, all of them, I think, in some ways are teaching learned helplessness. They're all about, do you have an innate ability to either succeed or to fail? And the more we're locating on that innate ability, the more it is. It's learned helplessness because, you know, like, I hate, and Carol Dweck taught me this, but wow, that phrase, gifted, the gifted programs are literally telling a child that your success is not up to you. It's a gift. It could be from your parents. It could be from God. It could be from the universe. But the fact that you can read so well is a gift that someone else gave you. It's not about the fact that you actually were learning vocabulary words, which is crazy. Yeah, I guess you would uh, have to couch that if nothing else. I mean, you know, LeBron James and, and people, you get these quotes and they say, you know, I'm, I'm, doing, I'm doing the best I can with my gift. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, they feel like their destiny if they grow to be seven feet tall mm -hmm. or a kid comes out and has an extremely high IQ and is skipping grades and getting into college at 15, mm -hmm. they understand they have a gift, but the way to kind of couch that is to say, what are you going to do with it? Exactly. Yeah. And it's not to say that people don't have different abilities. and That you can recognize. And, without, and absolutely, yeah. you can recognize them. I mean, I know that I am not a natural athlete. The fact that I made it up here without tripping in the elevator is an achievement. but. I can work with the things that I don't, that don't naturally come to me. And I can also work better and harder on the things that do come to me. And in both cases, it's on me to improve. And that's where the focus needs to be on improvement. It's not about where I am now. It's where I want to be. It's uh, been, been thought that's the key to happiness too, is to, is to focus on the effort and on improvement, regardless of your, you mean focus you, on the improvement? Where you rank, yeah. Um, you said not improvement. Oh, uh, focusing on the effort and on improvement. Oh, on improvement, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. well, I think that, you know, I, I've been trying to back off an effort just because hmm. it's an example. Hmm. It's not the synchrono. It's the example because effort is something in theory I can control. Mm -hmm. But if you take anything too far... It can become like it's some innate ability you either have or you don't. So in the U.S., we're obsessed with smarts. In China, they're obsessed with effort. And effort, effort, effort. You have to, you know, you have to go to school and then you have to go to study school and then you have to do this and you have to do that. And Flory, you know, Flory a couple, and a couple of researchers studied and, you know, kids in China go, I don't know. I just can't work as hard as that other kid. I got to go sleep. So they're actually believing that the ability to put out effort is something that they don't have compared to the other kids who are staying up in for extra study. Oh, I like that. So, that's, that's so it's any, anything taken too far can be almost taught that it's an innate ability and you either have it or you don't. It's more about focused on what's on your control and can you improve it over time and, and not be so worried about the result. And I tell athletes and teams that all the time, which is really funny, especially in professional teams, because they're all very clear. You know, the owner really doesn't want to hear that winning isn't important. <laughs> and I always laugh and go, yeah, yeah, I know, I know, I know. But the thing is, it's okay if I just keep rambling. The, the thing is, the you got to keep is... rambling. You're on a roll right now. <laughs> yeah. 
the, the thing is, if you focus on the result, you don't realize why you were successful. Sometimes you succeed because of dumb luck. Sometimes you succeed because the other guy had a bad day. Well, you can't count on the other guy having a bad day the next time you compete, right? And sometimes you're there just because it's easy, right? I mean, I know Olympians and professional athletes who will flip out because they, they won. And they knew the competition. They knew the field. They knew they were going to win. They weren't there for the win. They were there for, to a personal best or to qualify for the next round of the next competition. So the idea that they won means you miss the opportunity to sort of reflect on how you can improve. How did you do better? And I also think it's really important because, you know, there are all those cliches, you know, don't look a gift horse in the mouth, all, you know. Don't, a win's a win. Right. Don't fix what I'm broken, blah, blah, blah. Hmm. But hmm. It's, it's more constructive, but we naturally talk, take a part of disasters, right? We naturally go, oh, we got to rethink how we did this. We don't want this to happen again. It's less natural to take apart your win, again, for all those reasons. But if the normal course is win, lose, or draw, we sit here at the table and we talk about what went right and what went wrong, then it's less traumatic to do it for the loss. Mm-hmm. Because it's not like, oh, well, we lost. We better sit down. You, you kid, you did badly on this test. We better talk about what just happened mm. and what went wrong. It's like, no, that's just what we do. We always talk about how we can improve, no matter what. That makes it less of a deal, less of a big deal, makes it more empowering, less threatening, and more engaging. Yeah, the great champions do that. Tiger Woods wins the Masters by 12 strokes and then decides to rebuild his swing and fall off from his peak performance level for two years while he's honing a better swing because he knew that he was relying on great timing and that his, his, his great performance notwithstanding, but it's extremely rare example. Like most people who blow away the field in a major are not going to go tweak their swing immediately after. Right. Greetings, my fitness-minded listeners. I want to acquaint you with the Primal Fitness Expert Certification Program, the most comprehensive home study multimedia fitness education course in the world. If you want to enhance your personal knowledge of all aspects of leading a healthy, active, fit lifestyle, this total immersion course will be life-changing. I'm the lead instructor and author of the course, and we have 14 chapters of extensive written content with over 100 accompanying videos covering topics such as general everyday movement, including micro-workouts and dynamic workstation tips, the full experience of gym-based strength training and all the different modalities, a complete presentation on all aspects of sprinting, both running and low-impact options, an assortment of high-intensity interval training and high-intensity repeat training strategies, a detailed education on the principles and practical application of aerobic endurance training, and extensive commentary, the most you will find in any publication, on all aspects and symptoms of overtraining and burnout. We even have fascinating peripheral topics like integrating nasal diaphragmatic breathing, dynamic stretching, injury prevention, and developing a peak performance mindset. It's really something, this course. We went all out for over two years with a great team to develop this this amazing home-based fitness education for you. 
And you get one-on-one -on -one expert email support and private Facebook group connection throughout your studies to ensure that you absorb everything optimally and you pass your series of exams and get certified. So go to primalhealthcoach.com slash Brad to enjoy a very special limited time. And I'm not kidding. This is a big time discount just for you. 25% off your tuition. A fantastic premium offer at primalhealthcoach.com slash Brad for the most comprehensive fitness course you can ever find. I want to tell you about wildhealth.com. They're an online provider of comprehensive precision medicine and health consultation services. They offer DNA analysis, custom lab panels, extensive medical intake form with family history and lifestyle preferences, and regular online visits with a board-certified precision medicine physician and a health coach whom you can message anytime through their convenient app. Wild Health evaluates your data to determine what you need for nutrition, exercise, sleep, and supplements, and you can experiment, consult, and retest to get everything dialed in. You'll get a cutting-edge epigenetic test of DNA methylation to calculate your all-important biological age and have fun lowering your age over time instead of following the mainstream path to accelerated aging. It's time to strive for awesome instead of just normal. Did you realize that only 6.8% of Americans are deemed metabolically healthy and only 2% are declared optimal? That's disgraceful, but you can turn things around quickly. Please visit wildhealth.com and you will see that this is the absolute gold standard of personalized medicine and it's available to you right now. Telemedicine available anywhere in the USA. Wild Health is generously extending BRAD podcast listeners 20% off the cost of membership. Just visit wildhealth.com slash Brad or use the code BRAD20 at checkout to get 20% off and start taking control of your health today at wildhealth.com slash Brad. Well, you know, I, you know, that one is such an extreme thing because I don't know if you had asked him at the time. I don't know. Maybe you do. But if you'd asked him, yeah, but you're not going to win for two more years. Would he have said, oh, well, maybe there's a middle ground or maybe there's a different approach or maybe I should just keep going then? I don't know. Um, that would be really interesting to ask him. We should, we should tweet him to yeah. see if he answers. Yeah. But I think that that, you know, the idea that, you know, are you willing to sacrifice a period of wins or successes when you know you could be successful in favor of that development? I think that's pretty interesting. I know that um, there's some researchers who've looked at like the um, the evolution of high jumping and the flop and going backwards or forwards and how do we do that? And being like, oh, that's just completely crazy and it's never going to work. But when you actually look at the history of how they were doing it, it seemed more of a natural progression and not some sort of revolutionary thing. It's just those of us who only watch, you know, high jump or um, or you know, those kinds of activities during track and field for the Olympics and the national run-up didn't see how it was going for the, you know, the previous two years of experimentation. But I think that um, at least a short-term willingness to say, is this working or not working? And what am I going to do tomorrow is going to be really important. And it's also just a way to keep yourself engaged. 
you know, I mean, I think if you're just, you know, constantly winning yeah. and crushing, uh, isn't that going to get boring at a certain point? You got to figure out some other way to keep yourself motivated. Oh, and if you're, if you're, um, uh, uh, dismissing this right now, we got to go look at the youth sports scene where the parents are so obsessed with winning mm-hmm. that they, yeah. they don't care, um, about let's say pursuing an appropriate level of competition or giving a fair chance to all the kids to, uh, to all focus on improvement. They want to stick the, the good players in even at high school level where, you know, it's no longer, uh, the, those goals change a little bit from nurturing and development and positive experience to, um, you know, they, they want to win and they want to get the best they can out of the players. But it's like, um, I always thought with, um, you know, when they, when they have a big lead, um, pull the, uh, pull the quarterback out and put the other guy in to throw 20 passes. Cause if that big guy gets, gets injured some point during the season, um, you know, you're going to hope that other guy has experience. Otherwise the whole team's going to suffer, but routinely they're just going for the padded wins because they'll up their rankings, like in the NCAA standings or whatever. And the, the obsession with winning remains. It's been 10 years, Ashley. So we gotta, we gotta figure this out. <laughs> Well, 10 years for me was the praise thing. Uh, the winning thing, I guess we could say, started coming soon. Top dog. Well, you know, it was actually it was funny. And I didn't even know we did it on purpose, but we, we, I don't think we did. There's a line in the, la- in the end of the chapter in Nurture Shock on praise, where we sort of mentioned everybody gets a trophy. And it was almost sort of a rhetorical, huh? I wonder if everyone should get a trophy. Oh, that blew up pretty big. And um, and I didn't even realize as I was writing it, and you know, we were going back and forth. I was just like, oh yeah, huh? And it just moved, and we just moved on because, you know, that it was just something we were sort of going, hmm. Well, I wonder if that's consistent. And then, if you think about it, in some ways, Top Dog is a you know, it's, it's a whole book about competition. So you can, in some ways, you could almost say, well. If everybody shouldn't get a trophy, when or why should they? Some ways, maybe Top Dog answers that question that I didn't know I was asking. And But even through the process of writing that book, if you had asked me during writing that book, you know, what do you think about everybody gets a trophy programs? I'm like, yeah, I'm not so sure. I don't, you know, there's some, I don't know. I don't think so. Now I just hate them. Oh, really? I hate them so much. And my vitriol. And hatred just continues to grow with each passing day. <laughs> do tell. I, yeah, do tell. and it's been an amazing progression. Now I'm just so adamantly against them. And I honestly was not when I was writing Nurture Shock. I was just sort of saying, well, how do we praise kids? Mm-hmm. And and I, you know, I was ever praising. I, I don't have kids of my own, but I've run an inner city tutoring mm-hmm. program for 20 years. And... If a kid made it in the door, genius, you're amazing. And I mean, these were, this wasn't even just some random thing. This was my conscious intent. Praise them constantly and extravagantly. And, um, and in Top Dog, it was still sort of, well, how does competition affect performance? How does it affect grownups? How does it affect kids? How do, it, how do prizes affect performance and, and behavior and conduct in the moment? So I was sort of still working it out. And yeah, it wasn't until about a year after Top Dog that I just 
really. <laughs> yeah, it all kind of came together in profound hatred of everybody gets a trophy program. I'd rather so, no one get a trophy than everyone get a trophy. What does it represent when the kid finishes the season and grabs a trophy? Well, I don't have a problem with kids getting a trophy. <laughs> and I don't have a problem with no one getting a trophy, like I just said. Um, and my and my point is not that everything should turn out into blood sport. I'm not advocating that every activity is the Hunger Games. I'm really not. I'm very, I, I try and, I, don't, I try and be a very nice person and I really want kids to be happy and do the best they can and succeed. So I, um, I, yeah, so I kind of struggle. Like People think I'm such a mean person. I'm not a monster. But there are a lot of reasons why everybody gets trophy programs are terrible ideas. One is that there was really sort of started, there was sort of this perfect storm of three things that happened in the 70s and 80s. One was that a sort of an outgrowth of the larger political and social movements, people were trying to figure out how do we get kids who are struggling to succeed. And the state of California actually commissioned a study on self-esteem. And the original construct of self-esteem wasn't the same as what we thought of we think of it as it was almost more of a sort of id ego who are you it wasn't a self-esteem means i'm great it wasn't the Stuart Smalley, i'm mm -hmm. wonderful in the mirror thing um so that, but but the construct pretty much came to this idea and the psychological research and then the state task force all sort of had come up with this idea that boosting self-esteem would lead to achievement and that self-esteem was actually the most important thing you could do for a child, build their self-esteem. So while that, but all of that was just a theory. There was no, at that point, empirical data to support it. It was just a theory. At the same time that happened was the rise of plastic mass merchandising. Hmm. And... All of a sudden, trophies, I mean, if you think about it in the 30s and the 40s, a trophy was that big silver loving cup that was at the, the country club in a, you know, in like the behind the glass, right? Nobody had a trophy at home. A trophy was uh -huh. the, the thing that, you know, you someday someone's name was inscribed in the plaque, like the Stanley Cup, but every country club or, you know, or the high school or something, you had the trophy uh -huh. case. Behind, was the, it. behind glass. Behind glass, Right. And, um, but you didn't have a million trophies at home because they were silver. Who could afford such a thing? But the trophy manufacturer said, you know, we can make a bunch of these out of really cheap plastic from <sighs> China. And then they started marketing those in catalogs to teachers. And the teachers who'd been just told the thing you can do most important to boost your children's lives is boost their self-esteem. Now you get a catalog saying for $1.99, you can boost your kid, your students. Uh, self-esteem how many trophies would you like well i've got 37 40 <laughs> exactly exactly so you had and then you and then you actually had the you know state of california imprimatur yes this is we want to boost kids self-esteem so you had this sort of storm of things going on which convinced us everybody needs a trophy for everything everybody needs a certificate i tried to figure out how many trophies and certificates were given. And I looked at a lot of research and I interviewed researchers. How much are we talking about? And the most accurate assessment I could get, this is a quote, millions and millions. 
Because if you think about it, we don't even know how many coaches are just going home and printing out 20 certificates and slapping a sticker on them. Right. There's no way to even know that part. Pretty much every kid who has played a sport in the last 50 years has received a trophy at the end of the season. It's expected. Right. It's a line item on the registration fee. Jersey, socks, trophy. Yes. Pizza. mm -hmm. Yeah. And so then, so that sort of, that was all long scene stage. Um, scene setting. Sorry about that. But so now and you all, so now you guys know where we got, but now why do I hate them so much? Well, one, so many reasons, so many reasons. One is, and, it, and it's not like, you know, oh, well, you know, the kid just got, you know, one trophy. Like you said, every kid gets a trophy for everything, right? I mean, I I was ranting on a radio station and someone called in and his kid had gotten seven trophies participation trophies for a karate tournament that he was in the weekend before. He got a participation trophy for every single activity he had done that day. He didn't win any of them, but he got a medal (laughs) seven times that day. He's blinged out. Right? So we're not talking about just, you know, the one, this isn't like a, I don't know, a kid trophy version of Rudy where, you know, I've been trying my whole life and I finally get one trophy. No, every few months you're getting trophies. Every activity you're getting trophies. And I think over time, what this is actually saying in a cumulative effect is nothing is worth doing unless you win. Don't even come home without a trophy. So rather than ratcheting down our expectations, hey, don't worry about it, you're getting a trophy, which is I think that what people think, what we're really saying is no, you must get a trophy. Oh, you're, you, you wanted to join soccer because you wanted to have fun and run around and play with your kids. No, no, that's not good enough. You have to have a trophy. You have to have public recognition of your greatness mm. to make that activity worth your time. So I think that's pretty destructive because some of the best things in the world we do, we do not because of public recognition. We do them because it's the right thing to do yeah, or we because do. we love it or we believe in it, not because we're going to get, yay, that was so great. So that's one problem. Another problem is we already talked about the importance of improvement. If you have to be a winner, what was the, what's the incentive of improving? The result is still the same. You get the same exact trophy, win, lose, or draw. There's no need for aspiration. There's no, wow, this is important to me. I'm going to work really hard and win the trophy. So and if anything, working hard, there's actually a disincentive. So jumping in quick. Sure. The You're okay with... The winning team in the league getting trophies? Absolutely. Listen to that. I I said you. Yeah. And I don't even Or the MVP, the kid who's awarded hardest trying in practice. Absolutely. Trophy for him. Sure. Trophy for the MVP. Sure. Trophy for most improved. Mm -hmm. The other 14 kids clap and celebrate. Or the Grantland Rice. I'd like a Grantland Rice trophy. You know, the kid who stays, you know, came early for practice and helped set up for everybody else. The, the person who shows the most character, you know, those are the ones that always go vile, right? The, the guy who, who's running a marathon and carries someone across. I'm like, now that's mm. real competition. That's sportsmanship. Oh, please, please give that person a right. trophy. Please give that kid a trophy. And speaking of which, I, I actually make a point of doing this so it's not just some random thing I can brag on po- podcasts. I talk to Olympic coaches about this. When you win an Olympic medal, 
You get a kiss on the cheek, maybe two, depending on what country you're in. You get flowers, you get a teddy bear, you get a medal. They congratulate you, they sing songs, they play the anthem. You know what they don't do? They don't say, now, remember, it's not if you won or lost, it's just how you played the game. We only tell that to the losers. Oof. A, we should actually be telling that to the Olympians. We should be reminding mm -hmm. them. That's that the Olympic motto. That is the Olympic motto. The important motto. thing is not, uh, not to win, but to take part. Absolutely. And the, um, the, the effort and the achievement and the nobility of the sport, it's not the outcome. But we don't tell that to the winners. And, you know, there's a lot of hoopla going on. So I kind of, I get that. Maybe it would be nice in the locker room with the coaches afterwards to say, you were so excited and you got a world record, but I also want you to know how much heart you put into this and how you encourage your team members. And that means as much to me as your outcome. That would be lovely. And I think there's some coaches who probably do mm -hmm. that. But going back to it's not if you win or lose it. We only tell that to the losers. If your kid came home with a trophy every day this week, when did you tell them? It doesn't matter if you won or lost. It's how you played the game. We didn't. Because they never lost. So it never came up. It was never an issue. So we're never telling kids that what's important isn't the outcome. It's the character. But if you ask, I think most people want character more than anything, right? Hmm. So, so you get this thing where everyone feels like they have to be publicly rewarded. Everyone has to be applauded. How I get there doesn't matter. And... You know, the, the super dark version of this, and what's interesting when we talk about, you know, the responses to winning and losing, and, and the good winner is a good, good loser. Because the good winner says, you know, well, it wasn't just me, it was my team, it was mm. my coach. And the, and the bad winner says, well, you know, he, he outplayed me today. She did really well today. Congratulations to her. I'm going to get her next time because she's inspired me to work harder. The bad loser is the bad winner. Well, you know, coach is just out for me. The ref wasn't fair. Someone, you know, oh. And a winner, well, same thing. Well, wasn't what any of them did. I did this. I earned right. this all on my own. Yeah. And that mentality actually can, you know, even Carol Dweck found this in her research with praise. That if you believe you are inherently good and I don't mean like people are inherently good. I mean, you are inherently awesome and should be celebrated good, that you're entitled to the win. And if you're entitled to the win, it doesn't matter how you got there. Even cheating is okay because, well, yeah, I broke the rules, but it's really not a reflection on me that I broke the rules. It's about you, you who are putting these rules in my way. Because if you understood my greatness, we would have realized that I already got the trophy before we... If I had tried harder, I really would have, but I, I didn't feel like it, so I cheated. And well, I didn't need thing. to because the output, right. the outcome is still the same. Right. I was supposed to win. I am ordained to win because of my greatness. And again, life's not about any of that. So why are we teaching our kids that? And you mentioned about it's the line item and the budget, and you're absolutely correct. I'll give one more thing, and then I will shut up. My everybody gets a trophy unless you ask me more, but. I did an analysis myself because um, I, you know, I, I'm not a scientist, um, but I do a lot of research for reporting. And I went through a couple thousand, everyone I could find, AYSO budgets. Because a lot of people put them on their website, you know, for fundraisers. And so I read thousands of Little League budgets, AYSO budgets. I wanted to know how much money people were really spending. The rule industry, the 
the they call it the award and recognition industry. That's what it's called. Um, it's a three billion dollar a year industry in the United States and Canada. I was like, well, yeah, but what does that word, you know mean for a team? I mean, that's a ridiculous amount, three billion dollars, right? But I looked at the budgets, and a lot of teams were spending more on trophies than they were on equipment. They were spending more money on um, trophies than they were on coach training or player training. And if you looked the other th- the other big expenses and what they put their money on, trophies, team picture, and uniforms. And to me, collectively, the idea is this team values looking like a winner, mm. but not actually giving you the skills to succeed. And I would much rather not give any kid a trophy and buy all of those kids a soccer ball. Mm. You know, put, you know, spend an extra 50 cents, put the name of the team on it. At the end of the year, everybody gets a soccer ball. And you say at the banquet, and you say, Loved having you on the team. Can't wait for you to be on the team next season. Here's a ball to play and enjoy when the ball and think about us when you're gone. We'll see you in a couple months. Right? And, you know, I mean, I've had parents say, oh, but my kid loves the trophy. Like, your five-year-old does not love the trophy. They want something to play with. You told them that the trophy was awesome, so they believed you. And it's shiny and it's pretty. Okay. But they really just want a toy. They're five. <laughs> so just give them a toy. <laughs> Yeah, I'm I'm starting to see the the the, the parents clouding this picture. Oh, and the, the trophy I've, could be more about the parent than the kid. I mean, my kid. That that I've heard lots yeah. of coaches say that that yeah. um, you know that they want and, and it's funny too because sometimes the kids say you know or the parents say oh but my kid worked so hard like no your kid ran around for two hours and played you worked hard because you left work early to plan a carpool. If someone deserves a trophy, maybe it's you. It's not your kids, right? And, I, and I've asked coaches, do you like, and this is from peewee all the way up to um, professional, I'm like, do you like everybody gets a trophy for Rams? And most of the coaches are as virile in their hatred mm-hmm. as I am. And when I ask the you know, actual coaches of youth teams, you hate it, why do you keep doing it? Oh, well, the parents would um, leave and go to someone else's team. So they're not doing it because they believe it. They're just doing it to preserve their cultural pressure market share. Well, back to the the article and the the, the content and nurture shock. Mm-hmm. I'm remembering that the best athlete gets a very profound message of that very early on. The most attractive female uh, starts to trade on that at a very young age. In other words, they probably don't need that reinforcement. Uh, The the best athlete doesn't need to get the MVP trophy. He knows about the 34 touchdowns he scored. I want to discuss the incredible benefits of red light therapy and how you can get started with Mito Red Light. Mito, like mitochondria, red light makes the premier light therapy devices in the world and at incredibly affordable prices. I stand in front of my Mito Pro 1500 unit every morning, carefully exposing my eyeballs, other important balls, and my entire body to special wavelengths of red and near for red light. When I tell people about my daily devotion to red light therapy, they typically ask, does this stuff really work? And the answer is yes. And there are thousands of studies supporting its effectiveness. Here's how. It's called photobiomodulation. 
where specific wavelengths of red and near-infrared light, red's visible, near-infrared is not visible, that's why it looks like only half of your panel's working, these wavelengths help mitochondria in cells throughout your body produce more energy and clear waste products more efficiently. Red light exposure helps mobilize nitric oxide trapped in the mitochondria and allows oxygen to return to the cell and increase ATP production. The benefits are proven again and again for skin health, muscle recovery, joint pain, and numerous inflammatory conditions. Red light therapy is also beneficial for circadian rhythm alignment because we generally get far too little direct sunlight and too much indoor blue light from screens and light bulbs at the wrong times. You don't hear much about this benefit of red light therapy, but when I turn on those lights, first thing in the morning. As soon as I wake up, I walk across the hall, I stand in front of the panels, and I feel instantly awake and energized. And believe me, there's a lot of days where Mr. Health Guy here wakes up feeling a little groggy and a little whiny, like I don't want to get up now and get into my morning exercise routine. But when I stand in front of the lights, in one minute, I swear I feel wide awake. I get all that grogginess out naturally. It's super powerful, super effective, besides all the healing and the cellular benefits. I also love it for being a natural wake-up machine. You have to try red light therapy. I am certain that you will become a devoted user. And guess what? Mito Red Light offers a 60-day no-risk trial period and a special 5% discount for BRAD podcast listeners. Just visit Mito Red Light, M-I-T-O, redlight.com, and use the code BRAD on any of their products. Go for it today and get started on your red light journey. I want to tell you about wildhealth.com. They're an online provider of comprehensive precision medicine and health consultation services. They offer DNA analysis, custom lab panels, extensive medical intake form with family history and lifestyle preferences, and regular online visits with a board-certified precision medicine physician and a health coach whom you can message anytime through their convenient app. Wild Health evaluates your data to determine what you need for nutrition, exercise, sleep, and supplements, and you can experiment, consult, and retest to get everything dialed in. You'll get a cutting-edge epigenetic test of DNA methylation to calculate your all-important biological age and have fun lowering your age over time instead of following the mainstream path to accelerated aging. It's time to strive for awesome instead of just normal. Did you realize that only 6.8% of Americans are deemed metabolically healthy and only 2% are declared optimal? That's disgraceful, but you can turn things around quickly. Please visit wildhealth.com and you will see that this is the absolute gold standard of personalized medicine and it's available to you right now. Telemedicine available anywhere in the USA. Wild Health is generously extending BRAD podcast listeners 20% off the cost of membership. Just visit wildhealth.com slash brad or use the code brad20 at checkout to get 20% off and start taking control of your health today at wildhealth.com slash brad. Well, you know, that's interesting. And 
And that was another reason why I didn't want to immediately jump into just, I hate trophies. I don't mean now, because now I obviously <laughs> do. I mean, over the course of, you know, it's been 10 years. Why did it take me so yeah. long? Because now it all seems pretty obvious to me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But the, um, the award and recognition, not the industry, but the value of it. So your true novice doesn't want a trophy. They don't want anything. Oh, we're, tr- starting to, we're starting to narrow down the, the, the deserving trophy field. That's well, right. Well, so the yeah. true novice is, you know, the kid, whether you're talking about a grown-up at work, you know, it's their first day on the job, or you're talking <laughs> about a three or four-year-old who's never yeah. swung a bat before, never been on a pitch before. They're just trying to figure out what it is they're supposed to do. You know, what are the rules? What, are the, what do I need to do to succeed? Do I even like this? And then if you add trophies, if you add scores, if you add judging on top of it, it's just too much pressure. Mm-hmm. Um, my fav- One of my favorite exper- experiments to sort of explain this was Roy Baumeister had um, college students playing a driving video game. And, you know, college students playing a video game, you can imagine they're completely locked in, they're completely successful. And then a you know, grad student confederate would walk in and go, wow, that's a really high score. And they immediately stop and crash. Because they're no longer paying attention to the video game. They're paying attention to the fact that someone's watching them pay attention mm. to the video game. And that bifur- that split in attention, someone's watching me and I'm now performing for them, as opposed to being engaged in the moment, changes your performance, obviously. So a true novice, you know, a little kid running around and parents are, you know, screaming, go this way, don't go that way. Well, now they're going to start second guessing themselves and wondering what they're coaching from the stands is about. I hate silent Saturdays, by the way, just FYI. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, that's just as much artificial not praise, right? Uh-huh. That, that's the don't yell, um, the overstatement of, you know, goodness and badness, right? I think, you know, screaming instructions from the sidelines is bad, but if you're genuinely happy and excited and encouraging someone to just sit there and stare at you, that's what researchers do to test anxiety <laughs> is they instruct, they give people like a task and do it in front of an audience that's instructed not to respond. And it just stress level goes through the roof. Oh, silent Saturdays. Uh, no one's allowed to, to yell no at one's all. Allowed to cheer oh, okay. at all. Cause when I was coaching, I would silent. have silent Saturdays to the other dad saying that there's only one coach allowed. Oh, we no, can't that's have totally instruction fine. No, to go, this is silent Saturday silent for you, Saturday dude. Saturday is like yeah. no one in the crowd is supposed to cheer. Oh, there's, that's funny. It's awful. Yeah. Oh my God. I've never been to one, but I have heard people who yeah. were at them and they're told, yeah, you're not allowed to cheer your kid the whole game. You're supposed to be quiet. I mean, you can get rid of the Awful. negative stuff and, and allow to cheer. I mean, yeah. I, I said and, that and very same thing. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Don't coach, but Don't, cheer all you want. Sure. Yeah. Absolutely. So, um, so your novice again, just let them learn. Just give right. them time to understand if they enjoy it. Now you're a true elite, you're an expert. They're less interested in the actual medal, because as you, as you rightly said, they know what they've achieved, right? And my guess is they probably won a lot of them. I was, um, USA Swimming's nationals were in Irvine just a couple weeks ago, and we had a lot, there were a lot of younger new athletes, but the previous, so four years ago, the Irvine had the national, uh, US nationals and People in the pool that year were Michael Phelps, Ryan Lochte, Cullen Jones, people who have more national championships than just historic levels. And those senior athletes who had had a million national medals were handing them out to the kids in the crowd. Wow. I mean, literally like they would do the medal stand and then they would walk over and then they would just throw the medal. And the kids were thrilled and 
you know, they got the record, they got what they needed to, but the actual medal wasn't so important, but they thought it could inspire some of the little kids. So they, they were passing them out. It was really kind of amazing to see these kids you know, yeah, crying. And, and so the excited. medal that I caught is not mine. I didn't earn it, but it represents something that it's I can con- work towards. So it's, yeah, it's, absolutely. It's a connection. It's, it's not like they're, they're saying, what's your name and, and giving no, no, a, a no, blank no. medal to some kid, you know. That's, right. And, yeah, and, that's and that medal meant something. It yeah. was a national championship medal, so yeah. a real medal. Yeah. So, um, so I thought that was amazing. I was near tears every time it happened and it happened all week, but so you're a true lead performer, you know, their competition is themselves, right? Their personal best. What can they new achieve? And the medal itself, the physical trophy can be a reminder of that, but it's still not the goal, the goal, you know, it's, it's different mm-hmm. where, the competition is really important and we're in terms of the prize itself is really important is actually then that intermediate stage. Because there what you're trying to do is you're trying to test yourself to prove if you are as good as you think you are. Right? I've mastered the basics. I've mastered the rules. I think I'm ready to play. But now the only way if I really know if I'm good is I'm going to have to play against you and see if I win. So it's that intermediate stage when trophies are important because they are that sort of test. Is this worth continuing? Should I sign up for the travel soccer league? Should I continue all of this? Or maybe I should just, you know, um, focus on a different activity or something like that. So that's when the medals have the most salience, that physical piece. Oh, but should they, should they be for the top finishers? only. Well, is that what you're saying? Like the Olympics has right. gold, silver, and bronze. There's not paper for seventh place. Right. And that's what's so special about the Olympics and everyone striving for a medal. Well, I think there, and there's, a. this is really interesting to me because when this is as a, before I actually started studying this in, in, for Top Dog, I always thought of competition from the perspective of the com- the competitor. And if you think about it from the perspective of the, of the organizer of the competition, it's a completely different thing. Hmm. What is the goal of the competition? If the goal of the competition is to increase uh, community health, so we're going to have a 5K. Well, a 5K, you know, I mean, I actually, I know marathoners who say they hate giving out medals for 5Ks because they think that's a participation trophy that's meaningless and you should really only give them to you know, winners of marathons or at least marathons, we know it's a thing. You know, I, I've run some 5Ks and they hand me medals and I always laugh and I'm like, should I take this or not? I don't know. Oh, wait, it's also a, it's a bottle opener and a medal. So, okay, <laughs> that had some use. I'll take that. But, but the, if you think about it again from the organizer or if it's a fundraiser, right, my goal is to get many people involved. So now I want more people to get trophies because they know that they're not, they don't have to be an elite performer, but they're likely of succeed, succeeding. Um, I think that the 5Ks, again, there you get a little bit of a trophy culture because now you've got this sort of... It's a finisher medal. Well, but you get... totally expected. And and, and it's competition, right? Because now they have like fancier medals and you also get a t-shirt and you get a package and blah, 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 blah. Um, But I guess in some ways we can say you achieved because you actually only get the medal if you finished, if you quit. And hopefully you don't. If you dropped out of the race, you don't get it, hopefully. We don't know what that represents to the individual person. And that person may have been working for a year to get that. Yeah, they just got their hip replaced and they rehabbed and they got a finisher medal and they're crying at the finish. They're so proud. And the winner's giving his medal out to some kid. So Well, but but they're not competing against each other. So so I'm actually, I understand their objections for the professional and elite runners in terms of everybody getting a trophy, but or a medal for a 5K, but 
I, I understand why that might be there. But again, focusing on the difference, right? So the organizer, whether it's for raising money for a charity or I just want my community to be more fit, you're going to want more prizes because you mm. want everyone to think I've got a chance of succeeding, right? Mm. I know I'm not a young whippersnapper and I'm not much of an athlete and I find out there's only one medal at a 5k and it's you know you know it's a trip in a i don't know a prize of a trip to hong kong and i'm like yeah but you know every elite runner in california is going to be running that why i'm not going to go to that i'm just going to be an embarrassment no 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 at least a third of people are getting a prize that seems to actually be the number Hmm. not for a 5k but a competition you know sort of competitions 30 percent sounds like a pretty good uh, ratio because that's it seems like it's doable right and but so if you want more people participating then you want to give out more trophies if your goal is to find out who's the best now you give fewer trophies and the prizes are steeper right so a hundred people will get a gift card to starbucks the top five finishers will get cash the top prize gets a trophy and a trip and blah 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 now what we're trying to do is find out who's the best it's going to mean we have a smaller entrance pool but we'll get better performances Hmm. so you have to ask why are you actually trying to have this competition and be mindful of it but that is so different than the oh every kid gets a trophy because they're not thinking about how it affects the community how it affects their team how it affects the player individually and that's another one of those things when I, like, again, back to that kid who broke a vase or made a vase. <laughs> we all, I think, understand that the appropriate punishment for a three or four or six or 16-year-old is not the same. But we don't make those same distinctions for praise. We don't make those same decisions for rewards. The three-year-old, everybody gets a trophy. The six-year-old gets a trophy. Everybody mm. gets a trophy. The, the and in some way, as those, even the 16-year-old, everybody gets a trophy. So why is it that we're not actually looking at developmentally appropriate ways to encourage and in keeping kids engaged as we do in the same questions for punishment? We just never had that conversation. And I think it's it's missing a really important understanding. Would you kind of... Uh, heighten the stakes of the competition as the as the kid gets older, just so they can understand what the real world's all about. And well, I'm not. A, I'm, I'm again. I'm not into demoralizing kids. You know, and I and I don't think the well, you know, life's tough kind of thing. Suck it up. It's not necessarily protect. Um, predict, um, excuse me. I, I think that having a sort of life sucks approach doesn't really motivate. Right. I mean, you know, the, I walk to school uphill both ways in the Mm -hmm. snow, blah, blah, Mm -hmm. blah, blah, blah. You know, no kid has gone, okay. Even if it was true. Wow. So motivated now. So, yeah. (laughs) Oh, good. Okay. You're motivated. I, I, as a kid, heard those stories and I was not motivated. Right. Um, But I, so I don't think it's about automatic age and life's tough. I think it is located on proficiency. So if you have a five or six-year-old who's playing with eight or nine-year-olds and has really got it down, then they're ready for more complicated and tougher competition. If you have a five-year-old who's still walking around, can't figure it out, then... So I would locate it more on skill set and kids' individual maturity rather than ages 
or, you know, when is it that we say life is tough? Mm-hmm. But again, I always want to, I don't want to focus on losing. I want to focus on improving. And that's true with winning or losing. So that's why, you know, I want the kid with, who has the most character to get a trophy. I want the kid who's got the most, who's most improved. He may still be the worst kid on the team, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. when you talk about effort and heart and how much he's progressing, that kid deserves a trophy because he may have worked harder and grown more than any other kid on the team. Mm-hmm. So would I want to celebrate that kid? Absolutely. More than the MVP. Sure. I, w- I mean, I'm fine with giving an MVP an award, but if you wanted me to like figure out like size, who gets the bigger ones? Hmm. Yeah. 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 At, at Meadow Oaks camp uh, out in the Valley, they had, I went there for years and they had a camper of the day award, but there's hundreds oh. of kids in camp. There's 400 kids in the camp. And it, it was a mug and it said Meadow Oaks Camp Camper of the Day. And it was a great celebration at the end of the day for the kid who got Camper of the Day. And it could have been for any reason. This kid broke the record in the uh, the, the challenge of running up the hill and, and hitting the bell. The next day is a kid who fell and got up, who's five years old and got the Camper of the Day. The next day, it's a kid that um, stuck around and fed the horses and, and cleaned up. And so it was, I thought it was really healthy because it was something to aspire to that was very hard to get. There's one per day out of 400 kids. And it was random in the sense that it wasn't like you could push someone out of the way and go get camper of the day. Hmm. That's kind of interesting. I mean, I like the fact that there was only one of that many kids. I've actually, again, heard of kids who get trophies every day they go to camp, (laughs) every kid. Um, cause it's a one day camp. So you sign up every day. So you can't go to every day. Uh-huh. And I'm like, Oh my God, please make it stop. Um, and if I can't appeal to you in terms of social and psychological well-being, just think of all of the landfills that are being filled with trophies, mm-hmm. but cause you can't recycle it and nobody wants your old participation trophy for their kid. But the, um, but what I worry about in a scenario like that is, are you, truly find, and maybe because it's only one kid, maybe you can find something worthy of trophy. But I know a lot of people say, oh, well, everyone gets a trophy for their own special skill. But then, you know, you find it's like, well, he got it for best laugh and that kid got it for, and you're like, you are just digging deep here, man. and desperate to find something. And every kid in the room knows it. Right. Oh boy. So, um, and so when you have to manufacture artificial praise so that everybody keeps winning, I, again, that's sort of where my spidey sense goes, Oh, I don't know. Um, if it's one kid out of that many and it's a genuine recognition, but why'd it have to be every day? And I also don't really like the, I mean, again, if, you know, someone's really working really hard and going out, then I'm okay with recognizing them at the end of the season. But, you know, things like, you know, you get a sticker because you were nice to your friend in the playground. Well, you're it's supposed expected. to be right. nice, right? You Boy, know, you got the... a sticker for, you know, p- putting the trash away. Well, that's just what you're supposed to do. Yeah. So bribing kids, rewarding kids for things that they just should do is another thing that I think is just really bad behavior. Well, we go through our, our lives the whole way. Then we go, I, I finished the spreadsheet on time here, Ashley. Absolutely. Here you go. Right on time. Yeah. Wait, give me some praise. And it's like, well, isn't your job to do that? Well, you, you yeah. say that. Yeah. But... Same, with, same with the emails. Like now I, I love on Gmail just came the new version. You have those buttons at the bottom. It yeah. says, great, thanks. You just hit it. Because so often, like 
you get into this mode where the person's expecting a reply. I'm going to say goodbye to you and say, thank you so much for coming and then send a follow-up email. You'll say, thanks for having me. It was great. Except for the first 15 minutes when we got off track on sports, (laughs) I had to turn the recording off. (laughs) And then, but you know, it's like, now we have a button to push. So it's like, great. Thanks. You're, you're fantastic. Thanks. I'll program in my own. (laughs) Insincerity buttons on demand. But I mean, it it concerns Mm. me because there is that level of insincerity is just floating around. I mean, and it's it's just routine. We don't even think about well, how I insincere. Know a, I know a company where the photo, they had a website of photos of VP and above. <laughs> and the receptionists and assistants got mad that their pictures weren't on the website with the senior officers. And like, well, we should be recognized. We work hard. So, well, yeah, but you've been here a week. Uh-huh. There was... Yeah. No, I, I, no, I always get praise. What do you mean? And there are tears if they're not. So they added everyone's pictures. Oh, they did. Oh yeah. I I mean, I guess it would help if, you know, they were smiling and it's the first person you see when you go there. Oh, I recognize you. Yeah. I'm in the right spot. But But that's not what they did. To waste your time demanding your pictures on the website is, that's funny. Yeah. The other thing that, um, that stuck with me, uh, that I, that I changed on the spot in 2007 is this concept where you say to the kid, I'm proud of you. And the idea that once you say that, it kind of takes the ownership or it it parcels out the ownership of something that they did that they should be proud of themselves that they accomplished. Mm -hmm. And now they're becoming a show pony for the parent. I don't know if I put this together with um, some of the stuff you wrote and, and other things, but I thought about it and I hear it so often that I'm so proud of my kid. He he got into UCLA and he's studying there now. It's like, wait a second, I didn't help him study, nor did I have anything to do with it except for write some checks. So he should be proud of himself. He worked really hard, but why should I say it in that in that terminology that I'm proud of you? Like you're um, now making the family name proud or some such bullshit like that, which I think can have a negative repercussion in the event that uh, let's say he he didn't get into UCLA, which he didn't at first. I was still proud of him for applying and trying. You know, I felt for like he still should human. be proud of himself for putting that app in, going all out. Too bad he didn't get accepted. But if we can kind of transcend this, it, it seems like it's attached to results when you say, I'm proud of you for this, I'm proud of you for that. Well, I think and I think it's really interesting. And, and some of what you mentioned, I think, came from other people. So I don't want to take credit for their work. Um, some of it, I can see where it came from, you know, there's overlaps in what we wrote about as well. I make up a lot of shit too. So there's three elements here. There's your stuff, other people's work, and then Brad making shit up. (laughs) No, I mean, I can see, it can see where the connections are. I think that one thing that's important to understand about whether it's praise or affection, a, a lot of times when I first, you asked about, was there pushback? Oh, was there pushback? And I heard people say things like, when I'd say, don't praise your kids for being smart, they'd say, I'll tell my kids how much I love them any darn time. And I said, I did not say anything about expressions of love or affection or warmth. I absolutely think you should tell your kids you love them all the time. And I've never said anything to the contrary. What I have said, we relate it back to praise is, oh, you got such a good grade. I love you so much the connection between the two indicates that your love is conditional because you got a good grade and I love you. 
Tomorrow you bomb the quiz. Oh, I don't love you quite so much today, kid. Right? That I have a problem with. You got to separate those. You've got to separate praise and encouragement. Praise is recognition for something that actually happened. Encouragement is you can do it. And that's another thing we commonly blend. The We blend praise and, praise encouragement. and encouragement. How so? Oh my gosh, you did so well and you're going to do even better next time. Oh. Now let oh. me translate that for you. Oh. What you did today was subpar and the only reason I'm even acknowledging it is because you will do better next time. So my praise was conditional on the fact that I expect more. That's not genuine praise. And that's not genuine encouragement either. Mm. So if you're genuinely happy with what someone did, you know, it could be a kid going down, you know, a four or five-year-old going down a slide. If I went down a slide at seven, you should have praised me because I was afraid. And that took courage on my part. If another kid who wasn't afraid of slides and was going on roller coasters at seven and he slid down, don't praise him. He didn't. There was no, nothing, no achievement. He just did something he liked to do, right? So we got to recognize where the kid is and where the grown-up is and rec- and that's what the appropriate thing is. But so we don't want to blend praise and affection and make that affection conditional based on success. That's where, you know, perfectionism, we can do a whole other thing about perfectionism if you want. But, um, and we don't want to make praise and encouragement the same thing because again, then your praise is insincere. And once your praise is insincere, I don't need to keep listening to you, right? Oh, you're just my mom or you're just my dad. You just said that because you have to say that. And um, how, what's the response? Yeah, that's actually true. So, so that I think is, is related to what you're saying about pride. I think that pride is an interesting form of, I don't even know if it's praise or an emotion. I mean, there's definitely an emotion element to it. I think I'm genuinely happy for someone and happy for their success. And sometimes I label that as pride. Mm -hmm. It's not that I expect reflected glory, right? Mm -hmm. It's not that I expect you to think better of me because my friend succeeded. And and I think that's that's where the problem is, is if I'm proud of you, but... That means other people are going to look at well upon me because mm-hmm. of your success. And that I think is, you know, what you were saying in terms of your, your kid. No, on the other hand, you did do stuff, right? You didn't just write some checks for your kid that you're being humble, but, you know, you helped them study. You gave them a supportive environment where they could study. Even if you weren't actually sitting at the table helping them study, you encouraged them to work, to work on their dream. And I don't think those things are unimportant. Super important. Oh, well, I'm proud of so, myself for being a good parent. And I think my son should be proud of himself hmm. for uh, achieving his goal of, of getting into college. Uh, but that, that's those separate, separate and distinct things. Because yeah, the, the I, reason I, this is, this has taken me 10 years to absorb all this messaging from parents. And you see this direct connection where they are living through their kids as this helicopter yeah, parent role. Definitely. And oh my gosh, this, the, especially in the sporting example, but even in the uh, career where the kid's freaking 30 years old and they're still bragging about mm-hmm. uh, their, yeah. their promotion at the thing and um, taking almost too much credit for it or something's a little twisty there where it's not, it's not pure and just celebratory. Yeah, well, it's interesting. Just in the past couple of weeks, you're, you're hitting me where I live because I've been <laughs> feeling very proud of a couple of my friends' achievement. 
And in both cases, two of them specifically, I, I told them, I have no right to feel this, but I feel so proud of you. And I'm like, and I'm sure that sounds ridiculously presumptuous, but I just want you to know that I'm so happy for you. And I'm so, and I did, I felt proud, even though I had literally nothing to do with their success. You're proud to know them. I, you know, I was proud yeah. to see them achieve their dreams. Yeah. And, and, but again, it's still weird that it's pride per se. Um, but it does feel more like, it does feel like pride, not just pure happy. There's something in it. Um, so I apologize if it seems presumptuous and say, but it just means I'm really happy for you. The, um, the helicoptering thing, um, I actually, as much as I'm against it, I, I try and understand it because I'm, there was actually recently a really great article in the New York Times about parenting out of fear. And I think that's absolutely true. And if anyone hasn't read it, go read it. It's pretty great. Um, and I'm not going to state her thesis beyond you probably can tell it's parenting out of fear. But I'll add my own take, which is um, where I think some of the fear comes from. There was a study in that was published a few years ago in the National Bureau of Economic Research called The Rugrat Race. <laughs> Which I love so much. Oh, was what it, a great uh, title. Applying for the preschools and stuff. Yes. Yeah, and yeah, I remember they, that. And what they yeah. did is they looked at, so there was, you know, the, the famous baby boom boomers is an actual, was an actual thing, right? We called them boomers, but they were really, it was a post-World War II baby boom. There were more babies. So the baby boomers, as they grew up, had kids, which caused a boomlet. So it wasn't as big as the baby boom because it was spread over time, but there was an increase in children. And that's when you suddenly started hearing, there's no room for my three-year-old at preschool. I had to apply before I was pregnant and I'm on the waiting list. Still haven't had the baby, but I'm on the waiting list. And if the preschools are oversubscribed and the schools are oversubscribed, then, well, obviously the colleges are going to be oversubscribed because I'm not going to, you know, these, it's not like we're calling the herd. The same number of kids are going to be going through all the way. And um, so basically, if my kid doesn't get into the right preschool at three, there's no shot at them getting into Harvard. And that became sort of the, the, the catastrophic version of it. But it could have been, there's no chance of my kid getting in their dream school, whatever the school is. And when that happened, the NBER researchers concluded that, especially among affluent moms specifically, increased their child rearing by eight hours per week. So they took it out of personal care, they took it out of sleep, they took it out of time hanging out with friends or going to a movie or whatever. Most of it, I think, was sleep. But if you think about eight hours, it's a full work day was now devoted to child rearing. Like flashcards and additional enrichment Absolutely. opportunities. Or get the kid yeah. to the soccer game or get them yeah. in the right soccer league. And that then, so they were actually putting in more hours so that their kid would be, I, that's, that's the only word I can think about it, more competitive in terms of the preschool selection and that grade school selection and the, ultimately the college selection. And while that was happening, then you started seeing resume building for children and parents. And I think that's still happening. And you still, so now you see that, you know, my child doesn't speak Mandarin fluently at the age of four. I am a terrible parent. I have failed them. So we're jamming kids into as many 
organized sports, as many competitive activities, whatever they are. And the kid has to be the world's best by three and maintain that forever. And none of, and A, the boom was over. (laughs) It's been over for a decade. You're going to get letters in the mail. Come to our college, please. Yeah. Actually, you know, UCLA, you know, um, of kids who get accepted, a lot of them turn it down because they also got accepted to UC Berkeley or Harvard, or they just decided not to go to college for a year. So, um, so yeah, most, you know, and there are still thousands of colleges that take everyone who applies. (laughs) So, but it's really hard. Nature abhors a vacuum. It's really hard to tell a parent, calm down. Don't let your kid, your kid doesn't have to do an event every day. It's really hard to tell a coach, don't give your kids trophies because the parents say, well, what do we do with the trophies there? The award banquet, isn't it an awards banquet? Shouldn't you have awards, right? It's really hard to stop doing something without something in, in as a substitute. So I think that those helicopter parents are really worried genuinely that their kid has to succeed in everything because there just don't seem to be any mulligans in this sort of mm-hmm. developmental pipeline. And it's, it's and from the parents' perspective, true. I understand that. Yeah. And, and I don't disagree, yeah. really. I yeah. think that ultimately, your kid, no, not every kid needs to go to Harvard. Not every kid needs to go to college. They need to follow their path, whatever mm-hmm. it is. And I, you know, they believe they're a success because they're a success because they're a good parent or whatever job they have. That's all fine. I don't care. I'm, I don't care. Mm -hmm. Um, But I do think people are, you know, are struggling with that and that the pipeline is less forgiving than it should be. I, Mm. a few years ago was giving a speech to heads of private schools Mm. and they all completely had bought into Carol Dweck. Don't praise kids Mm. for intelligence. Kids need to learn how to fail and overcome adversity. You know, it was, it it was a revival meeting. Oh yeah, absolutely. Oh yeah. yeah. Thank you for buying in. Go back to your private school now with your tuition and and then I said track record. And then I said, okay, now you guys are the heads of schools of some of the more important schools in the country. How are you going to implement this in your schools? I said, can you, as a one teacher in my high school, because I went to a private school, and I will never forget this. I remember exactly what this one teacher did. The one teacher said, you know, that one bad grade can screw up your whole class, right? I mean, if you just mathematically, a, a one F on a quiz, it takes seven or eight A's to counteract it, right? Now, you're not an A, you're not an F student. You're not a C student, but the F just crushed you. So he actually threw out the low grade. Wow. One low grade because he didn't think it was representative of where you are. If you, got a, if you were normally a C student and you got a D or an F, you were no longer a C student. You were an A student, whatever. So he basically gave, he did, he gave people an institutional model again and told them at the beginning of the semester, don't freak out about every single quiz. You're allowed to have a bad day here. Hmm. So I threw that out to the heads of schools and I said, that doesn't have to be the thing. I liked it. It meant I wasn't hysterical every quiz. But are things like that, can you do something like that in your schools? And? And suddenly the cheering stopped. Oh, because they're stressing about that suggestion? Yeah. It was because it hadn't occurred to them. The rigor will go down or something? Well, I mean, I don't think it occurred to them. And I was like, you know, like, and maybe you, I'm like, you're the heads of schools. I'm not. Yeah. I'm sure you guys can come up with, with more creative things than that. That's just the one I know about. Yeah. But how institutionally 
are we actually allowing kids to fail? We're now telling them they can. But experientially, when can they yeah. without it being devastating? Oh, if, if you get a B, you're not getting into UCLA or Berkeley or the right. selective schools, Absolutely. literally in high yeah. school in four years. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You're not allowed um, to not be perfect. Yeah. And one, one teacher at my, my kid's high school, uh, you had the option of coming back and improving your test score to get an A. Mm -hmm. So if you really want to get an A, mm -hmm. you could go back three times and keep retaking the test or working through the problems that you missed. And I was like, wow, that was, it was a mind blowing idea. Yeah. That's not, it's not used often, but why not? Because then I mastered the work. It took right. me four extra sessions in the afternoon to come back and work through those problems because I missed six problems on the test. And now mm -hmm. I got four of them right on my second take. Then I got the last two. And so I, I got this? 100%. And when was this? This was uh, at Placer High. I can't even remember which. I think okay. it was fully. But, uh, but isn't it amazing that you remember exactly how yeah, many questions cool you idea. got wrong and how you got to do it? So these opportunities where a teacher or a coach or somebody comes up with a way for you actually to work through that failure and improve lasted it with both of us permanently for our lives. And I think the sad thing is we remembered them because they were the exceptions. Yeah. And they were innovative. But what if every one of your teachers had a program like that? Then I guess you get more straight A students applying to the schools and we'd have the same problem of well, like, I, how no, do we I mean, select out? Yeah. Well, I mean, that's a different... It's a topic for a different podcast, yeah. but I think that, um, so I do try and be, you know, understand the helicopter parents, but I, I, feel, I really, <laughs> so nice I really do. Yeah. Um, but I want them to understand how much it, it potentially can be hurting their kids. And we now, and there's now actual studies looking longitudinally at parents who were more intrusive, more, um, more actively supervising and monitoring and fixing mistakes and that their kids really are struggling in college years later, because they are now expecting either that praise or that constant monitoring or fixing their mistakes for them. So um, I understand it's hard um, and I'm sympathetic, but it doesn't mean you can't, you got to got to do better. You got to do better. Ashley, I think that's a, a nice place to, um, to, to pick up a whole new show on helicopter parenting. <laughs> I, I appreciate your empathy so much instead of, <laughs> instead of going out on the attack because um, you know, I'm trying not to be one myself. I'm seeing all these cultural influences where, gee, if I have a hands-off approach, um, my kid's going to get left behind. And these things kick in when you, when you, you want to buy in like the headmasters of the schools. So it's, it's a tough battle, but well, a think, nice sensitive, you, you dispensed your, your feedback with loving kindness, which is also <laughs> part of your, part of your work. You can say anything you want to your kid, but make sure it's with loving kindness. Great stuff. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that we all want our kids to do better. And the real problem is when we forget that and, it, you know, whether it becomes about, you know, I get recognition because my kids were successful, then that's a problem. If it, but if, you know, if it's no, I really want, you know, the best for my kids, I think that's a noble thing. It doesn't mean we can't do it better. That's all. Dun, dun, dun. Ashley Merriman, thank you so much. Go get Top Dog and Nurture Shock, people, especially if you're a parent or if you're a competitor of any kind. Dig into Top Dog. Love those insights about, I'll just leave us with one, was the, um, oh, 
you, you rise to the level, you rise above uh, with competition helps you rise to the next level, but right. only if it's just a little bit better, right. not a whole crap ton better, because then you get discouraged. Right. So the ideal situation is playing with people that are just a little better than you. Just a little Love better. Love that. Because then you have a goal, but it's something that seems attainable. And that person is probably feeling that way about you. So the two of you will both sort of oh, make yeah. each other better. Right on. Here we go. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to the show. We would love your feedback at getoveryourselfpodcast at gmail.com. And we would also love if you could leave a rating and a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. I know it's a hassle. You have to go to desktop iTunes, click on the tab that says ratings and reviews, and then click to rate the show anywhere from five to five stars. And it really helps spread the word so more people can find the show and get over themselves because they need to. Thanks for doing it. Hey, how about a backwards commercial? Are you ready? So go to OrganifiShop.com and enter the discount code BRAD for 20% off your order. That's O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I shop.com. Why? Would I do something as silly as a backwards commercial? It's because I'm positive you have to try this stuff. Trust me, order some now. It's going to change your life. Organifi is an organic superfood supplement company. They're known for their greens. You take them when you travel, get all your nutrition. But I like their top secret, Organifi Gold, warm relaxation beverage. This is the single best tasting tea you will ever try in your life. So if you want something soothing, delicious, nutritious at the end of your busy, productive day, pour yourself a scoop of Organifi Gold. What's in there? Turmeric, the anti-inflammatory superstar is the base. And then listen to this, smooth coconut milk, cinnamon, ginger, lemon balm, and two super mushrooms. It's legit. It's delicious. Check it all out at OrganifiShop.com. And don't forget to put in Brad for 20% off. Try Organifi Gold. If you're not totally satisfied, send it back to me and I'll keep it.